Hey guys, welcome to the Short Term Show special episode series, 10 episode deep dive on the Galveston and Crystal Beach, Texas markets. Couple notes before we dive in. If you guys are looking for current income and current prices of properties in this market, you can get all of that info on our website at theshorttermshop.com. You can set up searches just like you do on Zillow or realtor.com, all those places. And we do have all the income data as well. So be sure to check that out. Also make sure you check out our other special episode series. So we have 20 markets that we operate as real estate agents in, and we have 10 episode series just like this one on all of those. Make sure to check out the short-term show as well as the short-term rental management show, and be sure to join our Facebook group. It's called Short-Term Rental Long-Term Wealth. Same title as my book. Now let's go ahead and dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Short-Term Show special episode series on the Galveston and Crystal Beach, Texas market. So today we're going to talk about financing and the different types of financing that you can get to buy an investment property in this market. So we've got a couple people here on the panel here to help us talk about that. First, we have, as you know, Kelsey Ardwin. Kelsey, say hello. Hi, yes. My name is Kelsey Ardwin. I'm short-term shop realtor in the Galveston Crystal Beach market. And I've been helping investors like you buy houses in this market for about two years now. And I own two here myself and one in the Smokies. And we also have Eric Napier from The Mortgage Shop, who's going to be the licensed loan officer to talk about all these financing options. So Kelsey and I don't have to say things like, well, we're not licensed loan officers, so ask your loan officer. How's it going, Eric? Can you introduce yourself really quick? Everything going well this way. My name is Eric Napier. I'm Executive Vice President of The Mortgage Shop. I've been with Brenna since the beginning. Um, been in lending for about 10 years overall, but really enjoy specializing in short-term lending specifically. So would love to answer any questions that you guys have for me about our loan types. Okay. So we're just going to quickly, or not quickly, we're going to go through the different types of financing that you can get. So we'll start with what I consider the easiest type of loan to find. That is the conventional loan. So you can walk into any bank, lender, mortgage broker in the country, and they will offer conventional lending. And Eric, do you want to start and kind of go over what the pros and cons of conventional lending? We'll start with the, just what do you use to qualify someone for a conventional loan? Sure. Conventional loans are going to be our conforming loans. They're going to adhere to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's uh, guidelines. What we do to, in order to qualify for someone for a conventional loan is really what most people are used to with their primary houses they've bought in the past. We're going to look at their income, establish a debt ratio, and figure out how much they can afford. Uh, then we're gonna have a conversation about that affordability and what they're comfortable with and get them qualified for a variety of different products. Okay, so let's talk about this here. So conventional loans, they qualify you based on your debt to income ratio. So that is you know, all the money you make versus the debt that you have. So that's your car payment, your current mortgage, your student loans, things like that. And depending on how much you make and what that DTI percentage is and your credit score, they qualify you for a number, a purchase price based on all of those factors. So you are limited with this loan type in how much you can qualify for by what your income and your debt to income ratio is. 
And also on these types of loans, you do have to put them in your personal name. You cannot use an LLC to get a conventional loan. But what I really like about conventional loans is they're always going to be the easiest to find. They're typically always going to have the best interest rates. So I'm a big fan of maxing out your conventional loans before you move on to other types. And there are differing opinions out there on this, but I mean, that's that's real estate investing. There's a thousand ways to do things. Uh, the cool thing, though, that I think a lot of people don't realize about conventional loans is they think that the standard uh, down payment is 20 to 25% on a conventional loan, but it's actually 15. And you might have to call around to a few different, different lenders before you find one who can do that. But it is a Fannie Mae rule, right? That you can put 15% down? That is correct. Um, we, we have the 15% down conventional investment loan. Um, and another cool caveat to that, which you were probably going to get to as well, but I can go ahead and throw in there, is with the conventional investment loan, we can use that income that you were talking about from the borrower, as well as we can use proposed rental income from the subject property to help us with that overall debt to income ratio so we can help the borrower qualify for more. And that's if you're using a conventional investment loan. A, con a conventional investment loan, yes. And that starts at 15%. It's going to be at 15% all the way up to the $750,000 conforming loan limit. And then everything above that, we're going to get into the jumbo area and that's going to be 20% down. Okay. And the other, uh, another conventional loan type that a lot of people use while we're talking about projected rental income and when you can and can't use it is that 10% down vacation home loan. So guys, that is a conventional loan, but you do have to be, the primary use of that property has to be for you as a vacation home. You're totally allowed to rent it out on Airbnb and Verbo for a profit when you're not there. But in my opinion, it is kind of a gray area of like running spreadsheets and analysis on properties. If you're doing that, your primary use is probably an investment. You should just go ahead and put that 5% down. But let's talk about, Eric, the projected rent income and the difference on being able to use that or not being able to use that on a vacation home loan versus a conventional investment. Yeah. So we'll start out talking about the 10% down second home loan. That's going to be conventional like we've talking about as well, but it's going to be totally based on the debt to income ratio of the borrower's income. We're not allowed to use any projected rental income on the 10% down second home slash vacation home loan. Like Avery, you were saying, um, it is intended for people to go there at least 14 days out of the year. Um, that's the expectation. Um, as far as being able to use that projected rental income, it does really have to be a true investment loan starting at 15% down for us to use the projected rental income along with the borrower's income to really bump up that debt to income ratio. I have Got clients it. who will use the 15% down conventional investment loan. And uh, sometimes when their DTI is tight, they may have originally planned on doing 10% down, but their DTI is tight. You know, they own more than one house though. They, this is their second short-term rental. They run into that sort of thing. Um, and then additionally, right now, not that I am a loan officer, but the loan level pricing adjustments, uh, it's like required points basically. And it can mean that doing 15% down makes more sense because you're not just throwing money away on fees and that the money that you're bringing to closing, more of that is going toward your equity. And also, if you're paying off some more of your equity, then your monthly burden is a little lower. Please take it away, Eric. Oh, yeah, Kelsey, you're totally <laughs> correct on that. I think actually a few of our mutual customers have done that very thing that you're talking about. Um, you know, And that's what we do when we pre-qualify or pre-approve someone. 
we talk to them about the 10% down pre-qualification, how much they can go up to. And then we explain to them, if you need to go up a little bit higher, then, you know, we're going to need to look at bumping up to that 15%. Um, as well, touching on those LLPAs. LLPAs are unfortunately a burden that falls on all of us right now. Uh, they are they are higher on the second home loan. And we do have to actually have so many of those LPAs covered by concessions or, you know, be able to cover those in some way in order to pass what we call a qualified mortgage test. So like you were saying, instead of having to worry about those things with the 10% down loan, it's a lot easier for some borrowers just to bump up to that 15% down where you don't have to worry about passing the qualified mortgage test. And you can just go straight into it without having to worry about those fees. Yeah. And uh, I had several questions about the uh, kind of required points. Um, and it was explained to me, maybe you can explain it to our listeners, um, why points are now required and what do those points go to? So the reason why points are now required is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac told us that we had to. Um, when the Fed started raising interest rates, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac decided to also add what we call the LLPAs or loan level pricing adjustments. These are added to every single rate. So even the top rate on the rate sheet is going to have some points or LLPAs associated with it. Um, what we do is we educate our borrowers as far as how to best use those points. The points basically go toward the cost of the interest rate. So what we can do is we can talk to them about what each interest rate is going to cost, how many points are going to be involved, and explain to them just overall why the LLPAs are there. I frequently get people who have two prequal letters, one for 10%, and there's this, you know, their loan limit is lower, and then one for 15%, and their loan limit is higher. Yeah, we like to do that to make sure that the customers have more than one option. That way, they're not pigeonholed into a box. Um, that's for something we really pride ourselves on is making sure that we give multiple options to every borrower. Yeah. All right. Uh, last thing I want to talk about that I think a lot of people will mistakenly think is a conventional loan, but is not. And that is jumbo loans. Can you explain the difference between just a conventional and a jumbo? So, yes, I can. The conventional loan is going to be anything under that conforming loan limit that I talked about of $750,000. Now, remember, that is the loan limit. So the purchase price would be a little bit higher, up a little bit above $800,000. Um, a jumbo loan, you still have to pl play by all the rules of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac but it's technically not a conforming loan. Um, it can be sold on the secondary market to other people like larger banks, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan Chase, a lot of times will be in the investors, the investors, excuse me, on a jumbo loan. So you do have the conforming loan up to 750,000. And then everything above that is going to be the jumbo. You still have to play by the same rules, but it's technically not a conforming loan. Gotcha. Okay. So typically what, and you said the conforming limit purchase price, because I think people can mix that up. The loan amount and the purchase price are two different things. So let's, I think buyers here purchase price. So what's that purchase price limit? Um, so a $750,000 loan amount. So the purchase price is going to be right around the $825,000 uh, mark, depending on whether or not we're going, what loan product we're going with. So okay. it's really just a loan limit. Correct. But I it could a buy a $1.5 million house. And as long as I didn't finance more than $750,000 of it, I could do a conventional loan. Absolutely. If you wanted okay. to buy down to that, or not buy down, if you wanted to pay down with your down payment to that $750,000, then you wouldn't have to face as many LLPAs and pricing adjustments because I'm going to be honest, the jumbo loan has more LLPAs associated with it than the conforming loan does. So 
If you're right on that, like kind of in the middle there, say that you're, you know, just a little bit over the conforming loan limit, it will make sense to pay a little bit more down to that conforming loan limit to stay than to stay in a jumbo loan product. All right. Now let's talk. Okay. So we talked about, oh, and you can only have 10 conventionally financed loans in your name. Keep that in mind, especially if you're married and you both work and can qualify for loans on your own. If you alternate who buys each property, then you can have 20 loans in your household if you alternate one spouse's name versus the other spouse's name. But if you put both spouse's name on every single names on every single deal, then you can only have 10. So once you put your name on a mortgage, even if your other spouse is on there, it counts on both of y'all's. So make sure that you alternate if possible. That way you can get more conventional loans. And you can also, Avery, one more thing I wanted to add. You can also only have have one second home in each market. So the 10% second home, you can only have one of those in each individual market. So technically you could have one in the Smoky Mountains, just like Kelsey was talking about, and another at the beach. So I wanted to add that in about the 10% down second home. Oh, yes. Very, very good. We just bought our second... Well, it wasn't a second home, but uh, our second vacation short-term rental property in Crystal Beach. But we had considered buying in Galveston because they're a number of miles apart. We could actually have bought in both Crystal Beach and Galveston using it if we wanted to go that route. Yeah, the general rule of thumb is going to be 50 miles. Yeah. Uh, but there are extenuating circumstances. Like I I can easily say me, myself, I live in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm well within 50 miles of the Smoky Mountains and about five different lakes. So I could have a Smoky Mountain second home and I could have a Lake second home. And that would be that would make sense and be an extenuating circumstance. Yeah. I've even had a lender tell me that. So my first one is a is not at like not beachfront and doesn't have a view. Um, and if I wanted to within a number of years, I could potentially get a second one. Uh, that is That's a possibility. It's, it's sort of a gray area. Um, we we yeah. kind of we, we look at that from, you know, situation to situation. Yeah. We like to stay out of gray areas um, and recommend that listeners also stay out of gray areas. Yeah. We didn't That's go to that why, gray um, area. Like, for instance, like Destin and Panama City, as the crow flies, they can be 50 miles apart, but it's the same thing, the same crystal blue waters, same white sand, same attractions. So it really doesn't make sense to have a second home in each, you know, one of those markets. You would have a second home and then an investment after that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Now let's talk about one of the more popular short-term rental investing products. I would say it's not terribly difficult to find. There are a handful of of lending companies out there that do these types of loans, mortgage shop included, but they're definitely not. You can't just walk into any lender or bank in the country and get them. They are called DSCR loans. So Eric, do you want to give us a quick definition of a DSCR loan? Sure. DSCR stands for debt service coverage ratio. And that basically is a simple way of saying that the house is going to rent for as much or more each month than what the monthly payment is. The loan is not underwritten like a conventional loan. We don't look at all at what the borrower makes personally. We're going to underwrite it all based off what that subject property brings in as a rental. And what they close this. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, you can actually close this in an LLC. I know we touched on the fact that you cannot close conventional loans in an LLC, DSCR loans can be closed in the name of an LLC. Awesome. So you can close these in an LLC. They're not based that you don't get qualified based on your personal debt to income ratio. You get qualified based on the debt service coverage ratio of the property. So what is the ratio that you have to use there? It depends. It depends on lender to lender. We have some lenders that are a one-to-one ratio. 
And then we have other lenders that are a one to 1.15 ratio. So it needs to be some lenders just to break even, other lenders a little bit more each month than what the monthly payment is, one to 1.5, one to 1.15, I'm sorry. Okay. So on this one, uh, I totally just lost my train of thought. Um, So you need the mortgage to, sorry, you need the income to cover the mortgage by 1.25%. Correct. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So if the mortgage is 500 bucks a month, you need it to at least get 500 plus another little Uh, bit. I I I can't do that math in my head. Yeah, me neither. But yeah, 500, like maybe like 575-ish over. Yeah. So you want to make sure it's a little bit over. Um, That being said, it's really not a good investment if you're not making at least a little bit over what the monthly payment is. So we wouldn't really advise our customers to be buying those properties in the first place. I know Kelsey wouldn't. Uh, I am curious. So, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, but please correct me, Eric. Isn't it that it needs to cover, you know, yeah, your home mortgage payment, but also your insurance and taxes, which are all planned into this? Yes, Essentially, that's correct. it covers PITIA. PITIA, Principal Insurance Taxes Insurance Association. So any tax, if it's going to be escrowed, which most DSCR loans require escrow, taxes, insurance, um, impossible um, HOA fees. Yeah. And then also you have to have what, six months of reserves? You have to have six months of reserves um, on most all the DSCR products, um, depending on which products we're looking at. There is qualifying credit scores. Generally, 680 is going to qualify. Um, but we do have some different products that have a little bit higher qualifying scores. And then you have two loan products. One where they do, tell me more, one where you have to have a 1007 and yep. one where you use just Airbnb, Air DNA data. Correct. Right? So our first product is going to be a 20% down product. It's going to, when in order to find this DSCR ratio, what we're going to do is the appraiser is going to go out and do his or her appraisal report. They're going to give us a value. They're also going to do something we call the 1007, like you mentioned. That's a comparable rent schedule. Their appraiser is going to look at comparable sales or comparable um, rentals in the area, tell us how much they rent for each month. We're going to take that and compare that to the monthly payment in order to find the the, um, DSCR ratio. With our other product, it's going to be a little bit different. It is going to be 20% down as long as you have a 740 credit score and the sales price is over $250,000. Anything other than that is going to be a 25% down product with them. But you actually can use Air DNA, Price Labs, past rental history, and other things like that in order to get you qualified on that debt service coverage ratio. So you're absolutely right about that. So one really good thing about that is you kind of end up with the same result, but there's the, you remove the variable of the appraiser. You do. You remove that thing. variable. And most of our markets, the appraisers have come to uh, see the light that short-term rentals are predominant and they do send us back short-term rental data, but we are still putting it in the hands of somebody else. With our other program, we go ahead and verify up front the debt service coverage ratio. We can, I mean, it's really done in 10 minutes based on AirDNA data most of the times, and we don't ever have to worry about that figure again. Yeah. And the I I really like that. It's not impossible to do the 1007. I manage that process very well. That's again, something an agent who's not familiar with this is probably never going to steer you to a lender who can do it and won't know how to manage the process. A lot of times that if I end up in contact with the appraiser, he'll actually ask me for short-term rental data. And where do I get it? 
your DNA. (laughs) So really a lot of time kind of ends up at the exact same thing. Um, But it is more straightforward. And one of the good things about it is that um, qualifying the property that happens within your financing contingency. So I normally write my contracts to have a 17-day financing contingency uh, and appraisal usually happens after that 17-day window is over. Um, So it can be kind of, I guess it's another, I don't want to say a gray area, but it can be a little harder to get out of it if you say, hey, my my client can't, really what the answer is, is my client can't get financing because of the property. But that's not exactly how a financing contingency is written. So it can be, please continue. And take I it. think financing contingencies are probably written before DSCR loans were even a thing. Yeah. Uh, so that's probably the reason why. And I will say that you are fabulous at helping with the 1007 process. Um, realtors who do not know about that process it is very hard to get those loans through because the appraisers don't, you know, if they're not getting guidance, then it is all in their hands. And it could be, it could be that gray area that you're talking about that we get forced into. And we'd rather, we'd rather avoid all the gray areas. Like Avery said. Yes. I try to stay out of them and sidestep them and uh, the mortgage shop. So really anybody can do a conventional loan for the most part. You have to be pretty inept as a lender loan officer to just completely screw that up. Um, DSCR loans are their own animal. And I really do genuinely believe that the mortgage shop is the gold standard in DSCR loans because they do them so often. Um, anytime somebody uses somebody who's not the mortgage shop, that's okay. Uh, I've definitely worked with an, another couple companies, but there's a number of questions you really need to ask. And it mostly revolves around exactly how do they qualify you for a loan on that property? When does it happen? How does it happen? Because they may say, oh, it'll be 20% and we just have to get a 1007. Well, then they find out they can't use long-term rental data yeah. on that 1007. And all of a sudden, you're mm-hmm. past your financing contingency and it's 25% down now. And you weren't counting on doing 25% down. That changes your numbers or you didn't have another 5% beyond your you know, six months of reserves and the deal doesn't work for you. And now you're in a gray area that you don't want to be in. Um, so I found that I found that it can be trickier with other lenders um, be, because it's not as obvious how you qualify for it or when you qualify for it uh, in the in terms of the timeline of the transaction. I do appreciate that yeah. because we really do pride ourselves on being the gold standard on on all loans, um, you know, particularly DSCR. Um, a, a little caveat about us on conventional loans as well. I agree they're easier to do, um, but for investors with complex income, like say that they own multiple S-Corps uh, or they have multiple 1099s and things like that, that is something that we are able to do um, more quickly and efficiently than a lot of people are able to do. Um, so we, we really try to make sure that we can take care of your clients the best we can on both both loan types. Yes, we do a fantastic job all around. And the, I think something that some people don't realize is important is the mortgage shop is a broker. And so there's lenders that that underwrite the loans and and the lenders that you actually use are really super important because they're the ones who say, oh, well, this is an exception or that's a problem. And, And I don't know, I found it on my end of trying to get people across the finish line and satisfy the underwriters. I know that you guys do a really good job to fight for customers 
on exceptions. I had that happen recently. I did a, a loan with Lloyd and we needed to, um, we had a um, exception on some random thing. And you guys do a good job of fighting for our customers to get past those little things. We appreciate yeah. that. Great job, guys. So a couple more like main points that I want to talk about on DSCR loans. One is interest rates. The interest rates on DSCR loans are higher. I've seen investors go to think, oh my God, this is the greatest thing in the entire world. I've got a, a like a big bank account full of money that I'm ready to buy stuff on with like, maybe I've had some kind of a windfall, but I don't have a really big W-2 job. So I can't qualify conventionally for a lot of things, but I have the big down payment that I need for a big property. And they get really excited and they go in to get a DSCR loan and they're like, wait a minute, the interest rate's high. This isn't a great loan. Well, yes, guys, because while I think that many lenders would love to be able to give people loans based on things like unicorns and rainbows and baby giggles, because it's a riskier loan, because they're relying on the idea that you as an investor are going to be able to make sure this property makes enough money to cover that mortgage, of course, the interest rate is going to be higher because it's a riskier loan for the bank. So guys, remember that when you go to get a DSCR loan. Yes, it is a really, really cool product, but it's a tool and you have to use it correctly and understand that uh, the better the product, there is going to typically be something somewhere where the bank is going to cover their risk monetarily. And it's definitely not where I would start. I wouldn't just like, oh, I've heard about DSCR loans. Like, let's go get one of those. Like like Avery was saying, exhaust your conventional options. And um, people can scale really quickly with DSCR loans. And that's absolutely fantastic. Do know that there's a lot of times a prepayment penalty. And so that's something yes. you need to realize. Very important point. Let's That's, talk about that prepayment penalty. What does that look like? Yes. Yeah, so on the original product that I talked about, the 20% down, um, there's no prepayment penalty when we use the 1007. Um, with the other products, there is a standard of five-year prepayment penalty. So that's going to be a five-year step down, 5% the first year, 4% the first year, or the second year, and so on. And are there any, any DSCR products that don't have a prepayment penalty, or can we pretty much expect all of them to have that? No, we do have a DSCR product, the 20% down. Uh, you can close in the name of an LLC now, uh, something that we just added within the last two weeks with this product, and it has no prepayment penalty. Oh, cool. That's awesome. So up until recently, you kind of had to make sure when you're buying stuff with a DSCR loan that it's something you plan to hold for, I would say, at least five years to make sure that you're not having to pay that big prepayment penalty, plus any taxes, et cetera, if you sell it. So that's that's awesome to know that there is a product out there that doesn't have that. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, we've been waiting a long time for that one. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the last type of bank loan, and I'll call it a true commercial loan. So this is going to be the hardest type to get because you have to walk into a local bank or credit union. There's not a big national brokerage that does straight up commercial loans. I mean, there may be, but I've never heard of it. And it's probably not good <laughs> because I've got a lot of commercial loans. So um, what the way commercial banks work, they are always small local banks or credit unions. They want to build a relationship with you. And there are very, very few that I've seen. They do exist in some markets, but a lot of times they are not hip to the short-term rental thing yet, and they won't do it for short-term rentals. So keep that in mind, but don't let that stop you from looking because it does exist. But they don't want to do a one-off loan for you. They want to build a relationship. So they're going to want you to put money in their bank. They're going to want to see that you want to buy multiple properties. You're going to have to give them a full 
personal financial statement showing all of your experience, a business plan, how much money all of your properties are making, how much money you have so that you can cover the debt on this if something goes sideways. And they want to know, and if you're only planning to buy one property, they are not going to give you a loan. And then it's kind of like a movie. They take all of this information about you to a big room of people once a week. It's called going to committee and they present it and they say, are we going to give this person a loan? And they decide whether or not they're going to. Uh, The bank can be local to you, but local to the property is probably your best bet. So you're not going, like, say you live in, uh, I'm not going to say Houston because that's too close. I always say Houston, but that's too close to this market. If you live in Tennessee and you're trying to buy a short-term rental with a commercial loan in Galveston or Crystal Beach, like the Bank of Nebraska is probably not going to be the person to call to do that loan. So you're going to need to find somebody local to Crystal Beach. And they're just really difficult to find. Interest rates on commercial properties are typically higher than conventional, but they are really great because since they're not selling them to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac on the back end and they're holding their own paper is what it's called, they'll be able to be more flexible on terms and things for you. So for me, I bought an apartment building once and we found during the inspection that it needed a roof, which was going to be $70,000. So they just financed that seven. They just threw that $70,000 in the pot, gave me the $70,000 cash to pay for the roof. And now I'm just paying off that roof. So they can do cool things like that, that the other loan types can't, but just keep in mind, they're very, very hard to find. And you do have to be planning to build a relationship with them. We actually went through some of that process when we were buying our second one just recently. We closed on Halloween this year. And we put together the personal financial statement and we started kind of looking at local banks and kind of shopping around. We ended up going with a conventional 20% down investment loan. It, the, the, the interest rate didn't seem to make it any, it just made more sense to go with conventional. Yeah. But not to say that it couldn't make sense for someone who's listening. We have a lot of people that come to us that have looked at both ways and they end up going conventionally as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with that. Like I love a good old fashioned conventional loan, (laughs) but you know, you have to keep in mind that they, when you get a conventional loan on a property that counts towards your debt, but the income will not count count toward the income part of your debt to income ratio until next year's tax returns. So if you buy something in January, You've got until next January, 12 whole months before you can count that income. So if you're planning on buying a primary home in the same year or buying another property in the same year, you need to time that accordingly so that you don't, because when you have that debt, but no income on this property, it's going to shrink your buying power significantly. Yeah. And we've been buying one per year. That's pretty much how it's <laughs> And we, I just wear it like a little badge of honor, just to my eyes <laughs> in the trash. <laughs> All right. So last last loan type before before we run out of time is creative financing. So I wanted to make sure that we touch on this because that's a really popular thing right now is creative financing. So there's a, any number of types of creative financing, but the two main ones we're going to talk about are owner financing and subject to financing. So owner financing means that the person you're buying the house for owns this property free and clear. So instead of getting a loan from the bank and paying them a down payment and then paying them monthly, you are just cutting the bank out and making a big down payment to the seller and then paying a mortgage with the seller monthly. So the seller acts as the bank. The only way this can work is if the seller owns the property outright with no mortgage. So before you even go down the road of asking your agent to figure out uh, how to do this, you have to make sure that they own the property outright. If they don't... Oh, go ahead. 
I can actually set up searches for people. Uh, we within HAR, that's my MLS. You can actually search for owner finance, and I can I can set up a search for that. Um, I've gone down that road with a buyer recently, and most of the time, this would probably be better for somebody who can't get financing. Um, not maybe because they have terrible credit, but maybe because you know maybe they're a foreign citizen or some something like that. And it was like complicated for them, but they're by and large, they're offering what conventional terms are offering and they want at least 20% down. So 20% down and kind of like the market rate. So it's really not significantly better unless for some reason you couldn't qualify. That's not to say there's not anything out there, but that's what I'm finding is pretty common. All right. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. A lot of times it's, you know, when people run into things like running out of DTI, but they really want to get that next property, they they will do things like creative financing. Uh, keep in mind with both owner financing and subject to, which we'll talk about subject to in a minute, I see people get all mad because they're like, well, that's that's not a deal. They want more than market and it's owner financing. So Owner financing, they are going to want more money. They, it's not uncommon to have to pay higher than market in order to get. I mean, think about it. I don't want to, if I'm selling you a property and I don't know you, I don't want to be wrapped up with you for however long chasing you down for, for mortgage payments. Yeah. If you want me to do this, you're going to pay me more money for my property, or I can just go sell it to somebody who's getting a regular loan, wash my hands of it and move on with my life. So understand that, I mean, you you might be able to, to bat a thousand across the board and get it for under market interest rate under what the average interest rate is at the time, et cetera, et cetera. But just know people are going to want to be compensated for the pain in the ass, honestly, that it is to deal with you and not just wash their hands of it and, and sell their property, move on to the next thing. Same thing with subject to. Uh, so what subject to is, is very similar to owner financing but it's when the owner has a mortgage on the property. And the reason this is really popular right now is because a lot of owners or potential sellers have very low interest rates, like 3%, 4%, 5%. And the current interest rates now are between 7 and 8%. So if I go get a loan, I've got to pay 8%. But if your loan that I'm buying the house from you is at five, I can, they call it taking over the loan, but you're not, they are not officially legally transferring the loan to you. They're keeping the loan in their name while they're selling the house to you. You are going to pay their existing mortgage and then whatever the equity is. So if they've got a $500,000 house, they've got a $500,000 mortgage, but the house is worth $700,000, you're either going to pay them that $200,000 in equity down payment and then keep paying their mortgage, or maybe you'll pay less than that. Maybe you put down 20%, you're paying their mortgage, and then they're owner financing the rest of that seven hundred. I mean, of that $200,000 difference to you. So it can be kind of, a, you're making payments to their bank and you're also making payments to them on the equity that you did not put down. Um, there's a lot of gray areas about this. I'm by no means an expert. Pace Morby, a good friend of mine, has a great book out on the subject. He is the expert. So definitely read that if you have any interest in going down that road. But again, my advice is always just get the conventional loan or the DSCR. There's a lot... Subject to can work, but a lot of things have to line up exactly perfectly to make it work. And there's a lot of gray areas where you and the seller can can get in trouble. It can get really hairy really fast. So you want to make sure that you have a title attorney who knows what they're doing, who does these types of deals um, and and figure that out and make sure that you're you're coloring inside the lines there because it's it's a very, very gray area. So I don't want I want to make sure that you guys don't get in trouble or get yourselves in trouble doing that. 
But I do think that it's worth mentioning because it is such a buzzword out there right now. Yeah. On that topic, uh, I would say they aren't quite unicorns, but it's like a like an endangered species or something. That there's not many of them out there. Uh, it's not just that your uh, buyer's agent is not willing to do it. Sometimes it just uh, like that. It, it does take a significant amount of effort to find one of these. And I can't make 200 phone calls trying to find one property where somebody is in enough of a bind that they are willing to do this. Generally speaking, if somebody is willing to do subject to a number of things has to happen. For whatever reason, they can't just go sell the house for what they want to sell it for on the open market. That would be the easiest thing to do. Just sell it to somebody. They get their full payout of whatever they're going to do and they wash their hands clean of it. For some reason, they aren't able to do that. Maybe they bought higher and they can't just sell it for that amount. So you might be overpaying a little bit for the house. And like Avery was saying, there's three parts. You're buying them out of their equity, probably over time. That would be, so let me start. You pay them a down payment. It could be a small down payment. A lot of sub two people want to do a smaller down payment. And then the remainder of their equity, so less the down payment, they pay that over time to buy them out of their equity. And then they're taking over, unofficially taking over their payment. Um, It requires on the seller's end that they really don't have any plans for what to do with that money. So if the property is owned by an investor and they're the seller, they likely have other plans for their money. Um, it, it doesn't happen very often that somebody needs needs or wants to get out of a house and has no plans for what they might do with their payout if they got it all at one time. Um, there are situations where it could, like if somebody doesn't want to have the hit of that payout all at one time, like if they were perhaps older or whatever it might be, and they don't want all of it to hit them in one year. Um, on the buyer side, you have to hire an attorney to write up the documents. Uh, I cannot write up. Um, there aren't any TREC promulgated forms. TREC is the governing body for agents. I can't write up that contract for you. You have to find and hire an attorney to do it. And you also have to find a title company. I know one or two, but you, know, you have to use a title company that specializes like a said. All right. So do we have anything else related to financing that we feel like the listeners would benefit from hearing before we go? No. All right. Well, guys, if you want to get a loan with Eric at the Mortgage Shop, Eric, where can they find you? You can find us at mortgage.shop. You can also find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Um, But we have two different options whenever you visit mortgage.shop. You can go ahead and sign up for the Lightning Lane, which will get you immediately into the application process. Or you can sign up for a one-on-one consultation to talk to a loan officer like myself or one of my teammates, and we'll go over your plans, your future, your goals, things like that, and then get you pre-qualified. All right. And if you guys are ready to buy a house with Kelsey in the Galveston or Crystal Beach market, you can email us at agents at the shorttermshop.com and we will get you connected. Or if you're not ready to do that, but you just want to learn some more about short-term rentals, ask some questions, you can do that in our Facebook group. Same title as my book behind me. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. And we also have a live Zoom Q&A every Thursday where you can ask us questions live. You can sign up for that at strquestions.com. Thanks, guys. That was a great episode. Thank you, Avery. Thanks.